Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am joined by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan, and I'm excited to welcome Fred Guttenberg. Fred is an author and an American activist against gun violence. On February 14th, 2018, his 14-year-old daughter, Jamie, was killed in the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. And sadly, only four months prior, Fred's brother, Michael, passed away in October 2017 from cancer, which was related to his service in 9-11. Following his involvement in these two distinct American tragedies, Fred wrote the book, Find the Helpers, and he and his family started the organization Orange Ribbons for Jamie, dedicated to honoring Jamie's life, as well as Orange Ribbons for Gun Safety. I hope you enjoy this powerful and thought-provoking conversation. Fred, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start at the beginning. What was your life like growing up? Normal, middle-class upbringing. Uh, growing up on Long Island, um, I was one of five kids. We always had two dogs. Um, I had two parents who worked their tails off and taught me the value of hard work. And I went on to have a very typical, normal, suburban adult life, um, settling in Florida, getting married, having two kids, two dogs, wonderful careers, until February 14, 2018. That's when my life became different than most others. Can you explain a little bit uh, for those who don't know what happened on, uh, on that day, um, what happened? Well, yeah, so on February 14, 2018, um, the day started like a very typical, normal day with one exception. This was the Valentine's Day that I really wanted to introduce my children to the romance of Valentine's Day. And I had a whole plan for that evening for us to do as a family. Um, Part of, I think, my motivation was we as a family were coming off of loss. My brother had passed away four months prior due to cancer related to his service in 9-11. And we were grieving. We, we had never experienced anything like this before. Um, you know, as I said, I was one of five kids. We, we, my siblings were alive. My parents are alive. Our cousins, our aunts, our uncles. We just never went through anything like this before. So for us, it was a big deal. And I decided that now we're here we are a few months later. I want to make Valentine's Day special. What I decided to do is my wedding video, which my children had not watched because it was still on a VHS tape and I didn't even have a VHS recorder in the house or player in the house. Um, I decided that I was going to digitize that. And so the day before I went and bought equipment to do that and we were going to watch it that evening as a family. Um, and that was my plan. And I, I was not done with the, the, Uh, digitizing of that yet on the morning of February 14th, 2018. So I was eager for my kids to get to school so I could get to work on this. And um, I was busy rushing my children out the door. They had to get to school and they were running late. And I needed them to get to school to learn safely. They were running late and I was busy saying, you got to go, you got to go, you got to get to school. Again, The day went on like a typical normal day, the normal texting throughout the day. How are you? What's going on? What are you doing? Um, You know, my my daughter typically would be the one texting with my wife, my son with me. And it was just, you know, typical normal stuff until about a few minutes after 2 p.m. And when my son called me and said, Dad, I'm like, what? And my son is a jokester. So normally when he calls me with that dad, I'm expecting, okay, what now? Um, And he said, there's a shooter at my school. And I will tell you the truth. I didn't know at first if I should take him seriously until he said to me, and I can't find Jamie. 
because he watched her like a hawk. He did not mess around with her safety. Um, and I said, well, where are you? He said, I'm running. And I, I, I was like, where? He's like, we're running off the campus. I said, then run faster. He's like, I'm hearing bullets. I can't find Jamie. Um, and he was hearing the bullets that were killing his sister. And all he cared about was that he couldn't find her. He wanted to turn around. He wanted to go back. And I had to stay on the phone with him to talk him out of doing that. Um, and thank God he didn't. And he made it off the campus. But we never could find Jamie. And um, she never answered her phone. She never responded to the text messages. And eventually, as people have heard the story, um, while I was able to get my son to safety, um, it was shortly after, later that afternoon, where um, my daughter was the first publicly identified victim of that school shooting that day. Can you tell us a little bit about Jamie? Yeah, um, she was my beautiful little dancer. Jamie loved to dance competitively and, and dedicated her life to it. Um, but beyond being this amazing dancer and beyond being competitive about it, but also loving it, you know, she could go train all day, all weekend and come home and talk about being exhausted. And then 10 minutes later, she's dancing around the house because she loved it. Um, but she was so much more than her dance. You know, uh, my daughter was tough and fierce and fierce about protecting other people. She despised bullies. Uh, if she saw other kids being bullied in school, she would put herself between the bully and the person being bullied to make it stop. Um, and, and the thing about her, she was petite. She was not a big kid. So I was always worried about her safety in doing this. And I'll never forget it. In sixth grade, one day she came home. Um, I think she was 12 years old. And uh, she says, I stopped somebody from being bullied today. She's like, and dad, the bully was really big and I made him stop or made her stop. Um, and, and, and I said, you can't keep doing that because you're going to get hurt. You know, I said, one of these days, those bullies aren't going to hit you. You know, you're going to come home with a black eye. And she just looks at me and she goes, you know, you underestimate me because of my size. <laughs> you know, that's who she was. So I, I said to her, I said, so you think you're tough? And she said, yeah. So I pushed her and she pushed me back and I pushed her again and she pushed me back. And the third time that I pushed her, I got what became known in our house as the kangaroo kick. Um, she had these strong, fast, fierce dancers legs. And I guess she decided she was going to end this. And um, she did. When I, when I got myself together, I put my hand on her shoulder and I just said, I should be really angry at you right now, but if anybody ever pushes you around again, that's what you do. Um, and it was over. She also was someone who believed every kid, every person deserved to be treated the same way. So, my, my wife is a pediatric occupational therapist, works with kids with special needs. Jamie grew up wanting to be a pediatric physical therapist, also working with kids with special needs. She volunteered from the time at a very young age, always for these groups, socializing and working with kids with special needs. Um, she went out of her way to, in school, include them in everything that she and her friends were doing because she just hated that other kids would treat them differently. Um, I, I, I taught my kids always do what's right, not what's easy. And Jamie always did what was right. Um, the world lost a really special soul that day. You get the worst phone call in the world that anybody could possibly get. What's the first thing you think about? You know, 
it's the first time I've actually been asked that. And I will tell you, the immediate aftermath is such a blur. Um, there's so many details that I remember distinctly, and there's a lot that I forgot. But my first thought, okay, when I was talking to my son is, okay, I know as long as I keep him on the phone, I keep him safe. As soon as I got off the phone with him, and what you need to know is my wife at this time was actually in a school near the high school working with other young kids um, doing occupational therapy. And in that school, they were on lockdown. So my first thought was, I got to talk to my wife to see if she heard from Jamie. Neither one of us had. Um, so all I could think of is, okay, where's Jamie? I'm sure she dropped her phone. I'm sure she's going to reach out to us as soon as she can. Um, I, I just, I wasn't yet thinking she's gone. There's a possibility. I mean, to me, the idea of that was was not fathomable. However, um, we soon started um, to become maybe concerned when as soon as I got my son and he was in my car, the first thing I said is, do me a favor. I said, give me a hug and then I need you to do a find my iPhone on your sister's phone. Um, and as soon as he did that, we knew it was still inside that building. Um, so now we were scared. I was still thinking, okay, she ran, she dropped it. She's with a friend. Eventually she'll call us on her friend's phone. But one by one, her friends started calling their parents. Jamie wasn't with them. Um, eventually I was able to talk to my wife who finally got out of the building she was in. And we started planning, what do we do now? The police were telling all of us to go to um, a hotel where they were setting up a, a command post. My wife and I decided not to do that. Um, we decided to go straight to the hospital. Um, if my daughter wasn't with a certain group of people, we knew that the only other possibility was she was at the hospital, or we were hoping. So we went to the hospital where we knew all the patients were being taken. And um, we spent probably an hour, hour and a half there. Eventually, they confirmed she wasn't there, and they confirmed she wasn't in any of the other hospitals. Over the course of that afternoon, all I'm thinking is, how do I find Jamie? I, I still was not able to come to grips with the idea that I wouldn't. And so um, I have friends in law enforcement. Um, one of them is one of my very best friends. and. He went, after we left the hospital, I immediately called him and I said, she's not here, go back to the school. And he did, and um, he found my daughter. And that's how we, that's how Jamie became the first publicly identified victim. Honestly, until someone told me it's confirmed, I, I still, couldn't come to grips with the reality that I wasn't going to find her, you know? Um, that wasn't what I was thinking immediately after the phone call or for a while. I was still planning to find her. I wasn't sure I was going to find her, you know, perfect, well, healthy, but I was planning to find her. Um, and, of course, my daughter died that day. So in the natural circle of life kids bury their parents it's not supposed to be the other way around no and you know i know of certain of my friends who pass away and watch their parents have to bury them and it's um it's a group that you never want to be a part of what would you say to those parents who are listening who maybe are at the beginning of that grief or trying to grapple with now what? You know, we'll get into your story and how you've really made sure Jamie, her legacy, and the amazing daughter that you raised 
is not forgotten and her death is used to prevent others and other students. But when that first happens, that first 72 hours, that first few weeks, you're not thinking about how can I go change the world to make it better? What advice would you give to our listeners? No, and thank you for asking that. Um, Because as a country, we're going through a period of time where people are losing people they love at an abnormal rate. And I do. I talk to parents now all the time who have lost children. I've done group discussions with people. Um, You know, uh, I'm not going to tell you who, but there was a a little girl who unfortunately died about a, a month ago and the parents are struggling. I'm having a phone call with them on Friday. Um, and that was a public thing. So, um, but here's what I would tell people, um, you know, especially in the immediate aftermath, number one, uh, keep your circle to your loved ones, your family, your friends, the people who just know how to come for you. Loads of other people want in. Okay. And, 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 and it's okay, but you know what? The only people who you really need are those that are going to be there for you, who are going to carry you, who are going to hold you, who know you, who you know in that immediate aftermath. Because your world is spinning. You can't stand. You're not doing things for yourself. And they're the ones who will know what you need without you ever telling them. And in that immediate aftermath, especially, listen, in the days following, my goal was just get through the seconds, eventually get through the minutes, and eventually you work on getting through the hours, and then you work on getting through the days. Um, I am still in this place in my life where my focus is getting through the days. Uh, I used to have a very long-term view in life. I used to always plan for the way things would be a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, two years. It's like now everything I do is about making today amazing because I know with certainty tomorrow is not guaranteed. And when I wake up tomorrow, I do it again. Um, I would also tell people this, and I think maybe the most important thing I can tell people It's what I call permission to be honest. Um, People who who are close to you, who know you, who you share things with, they know what's going on. But there's a lot of other people who mean well. They really do. Who will walk up to you and say, how are you doing? You look better. Okay, which when I hear that, it it used to drive me insane. Okay, because you know you put on a brave front, and they brought you look better. Or people who aren't amongst your closest people, um, and who will come up to you and they they'll ask start asking questions because you know while they they do it with good intentions. They want you to tell them that you're doing better because that helps them to feel better. Um, But I got into the habit of telling people, this conversation is not helping me. This conversation is not good for me. And the first time I did it, there was um, – down here they built this uh, temporary – they called it the – uh, um, it was a temple, I forget the name of it, a wooden, big, huge wooden structure where people could go visit it for several months and put all these mementos to those who were killed in it. And then the whole thing was going to be lit in a huge bonfire. It, it was burnt to the ground so that everybody, it was a way of letting everything go, moving on, which is great for the community, not necessarily the 17 families. And I was there one day with my family looking around. And someone came up to me and just started asking me questions. It's someone who really didn't know me well enough. And I, that was the first time I said to that person, 
you're you're not making me feel good right now and i need to let you know that and i appreciate your concern but i need to walk away from you my wife and my son just looked at me like oh my god but i've done it many times since and i tell everyone else now going through this you are allowed to have your emotions your feelings and your pace and it's okay to tell somebody permission to be honest that you're not really interested in discussing that with them um the other thing i would tell parents is what our now president told me and it may have been the most valuable piece of advice anyone gave to me in fact it was the most valuable when he told me nobody grieves the same way or at the same pace um i'll never forget sitting with him and him telling me 92 percent of all marriages fail after an event like this and the fact that he came prepared with that kind of information and to have this discussion is a testament to who he is but he says this isn't to scare you this is to prepare you this is so you know what to expect and how to make sure you're not in that 92 percent um you know you have to make sure that you each grieve your own way at your own pace but that you also give yourself those opportunities to grieve together and and i'm so thankful that he said that to me because if he hadn't i would have thought there was something wrong in my house I was very public. I was taking on fights. I was pushing people and pushing buttons. And my wife and my son needed privacy. They needed peace. They wanted nothing to do with what I needed. Um, and I wasn't in a place to do what they needed. Uh, I would have thought, if not for Joe Biden telling me that. That's actually normal going through this, that there was something wrong. Um, and so everybody going through grief, the most important thing, lesson I can probably offer is the one that was offered to me, which is we all grieve differently. We all grieve at our own pace, but we have to find ways to support one another doing that. I've experienced, and I'm curious if this is where you're coming from, you talked about in your book how something that kind of haunts you is that you don't remember if you told Jamie, I love you before kind of getting her out of school. And I also kind of dealt with that when I dealt with a very close friend who passed away. And since that experience, I am a lot more vocal with my friends and loved ones and feelings, even if it's a scary, vulnerable place to be telling mm -hmm. someone, I appreciate you, or I love you, or I care about you. Have you seen that shift, at least with you, because you lost your brother, and then four months later, Jamie, do you feel like now you don't miss the opportunity or the moment to tell someone how you feel? You know, it, it's, it's a really important question. Um, and the first time that I talked about this was the day after Jamie was killed at the Parkland Vigil. And the first 24 hours, like I told you earlier, was such a blur that it hadn't, it really still hadn't hit me when I went to the vigil, exactly what was going on in my life. Like I was just in this, I don't know if it was shock or what, but like it just hadn't hit me until I stood up there on that stage and I looked out at the crowd of thousands of people holding candles and crying. And for the first time, it sunk in like, oh, my God, like my daughter is dead. Like I sent her to school yesterday and I'm standing on that stage getting ready to talk to people. And all of a sudden, I'm reliving this morning in my head that, that I sent my children to school. I'm, for the first time, my, my mind slowed down enough to think back to the morning that I sent them to school. Uh, the last time I saw her. And that's why I started talking about it in that speech. It was like, I was talking about it as I was thinking it. Um, and I am confident I didn't say it. 
I am confident. My last words were, you got to go. You got to go. You got to get to school. You're going to be late. And I'll never forget telling people that night, especially the kids, that when your parents grab you, hug you, hold you, kiss you, tell you they love you, indulge them and let them because they do. And tell them also. And telling everyone in that audience, whenever you tell someone you love them, don't do it in a passing way. You look them in the eye and you tell them as if it could be the last time um, because you never know. Um, can I say that I am perfect, that I never miss a chance to do it? No, I can't, but I try to never miss a chance. Um, I, I mean, I live in a community where these unexpected things are not supposed to happen, but you know what? It did. Um, and I take nothing for granted anymore. So in the short period of time, you lost your brother and your daughter. You grew up Jewish. Yeah. Did you seek out a rabbi or what was your relationship with, with God, with religion? You, you had these awful things happen. It is such a great question. I, I grew up in a conservative temple in New York. All, you know, we went to temple regularly. Um, as an adult, I did not continue in a conservative temple. I was more in the reform movement. But, you know, not going to temples regularly, but we belonged to a temple and, and we went, in a, you know, um, what I would call often enough. And uh, my daughter was bat mitzvah, my son was bar mitzvah. Um, when my brother was sick, not the when he, when he first got sick in 2013, it didn't impact my relationship with God. You know, um, you know, we, we we always knew there was a possibility he could get sick because of what happened on 9/11, and watching him quickly get diagnosed, have the surgery, and recover. Actually, I was blown away and amazed in a positive way. When it came back in 2016, as spots first on his lungs, and then quickly he started having GI issues, and it turns out it was in his stomach and liver, um, it still didn't immediately impact. But what happened was his final, call it six months, my brother got robbed of what he enjoyed most in life. He was single, he didn't have kids, and he loved, he used to call it breaking bread. His favorite thing to do was just get together with groups of friends, go out for dinner, drinks, and it was more than actually six months, it was close to his final year. His whole GI system shut down. Um, he ended up on a feeding tube. He couldn't do that anymore. So. His illness robbed him of the thing he loved most. My brother would have given, my brother would have run into the World Trade Center again, because that's the kind of person he was. And yet, he gave his life for it. Um, at the age of 50, at a time where he was really ready to start, to start living life a little bit more than he ever had, because he had always been so dedicated and committed to his work and his patience. When he was in hospice, I'll never forget, it was my brother's rabbi who came very often to visit us in hospice. And one of the nights that he was there, my, my, he asked myself, my parents, my siblings, how we were doing. And I said, you know what? I'm pretty pissed off at God right now. Um, and the rabbi said, I understand. And I explained that my brother, uh, this was going to be the moment where his life was going to start really becoming more about the things that he wanted to indulge in on a personal level. And, you know, the rabbi talked to me about God's plan and said, your brother did more in 50 years than most people will in a hundred. And, you know, God needed him elsewhere. And it gave me comfort. It, it actually made me feel accepting of what was about to happen. 
And I continued to be accepting until my daughter got killed, murdered. Um, you can't tell me that was part of God's plan. Now, there are people who have tried. They've said, well, look at what it did. It got you into this movement. I didn't need to lose my daughter. Find another way. I've, if this was part of God's plan, then it's an evil God, okay? Um, and so I kind of have lost my belief in a higher power. Once I've lost my belief, I've terminated it. Um, I, 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 I often say I, I haven't served divorce papers with God, but we're close. Um, I, and I haven't been able to find a path back. The thing is, while my faith in a higher power has been shattered, my faith is stronger than ever, but it's not in a higher power. It's in people. It's in the people around me who have continued to show me how amazing they are, who have stood up and become my helpers, those who I knew, those who I've got to know. Um, so I have a deeper faith in humanity than I ever did, which might surprise some people to hear that, considering I, my daughter's life was taken, you know, because of another human being. Um, but not, but but not in God. I'm I'm I to this day I struggle with that. In fact, um, about two years ago, I was in Ohio um, testifying there on gun safety, and and I had the chance to meet with Governor John Kasich. And anyone who knows him knows he's a very religious person. Um, and and he spoke to me a lot about this um, and his only advice was just stay in touch with your rabbi you'll never know when it, when you'll find your way back um, i haven't yet i'll, I'll tell you my uh, grandfather was a holocaust survivor recently passed away he struggled Sorry. with it thank you he struggled with it for the rest of his life um, he, he died at 101. Wow. He was 19 when the Nazis uh, took his family and, and sent him to the camps. So he spent the rest of his life struggling with God. Our, our people, that's, that's what we do. Um, unfortunately, we've had this, this history. I think what, what gave him some comfort was seeing my brother as a rabbi up at the pulpit giving a sermon. And I'm not saying there's a purpose for, for, for it all or that, like you said, if, if this was God's plan, it's, you know, it's an evil God. And I don't think there's an evil God. Um, but I find it interesting that your faith in humanity uh, grew. And, and I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about the people uh, that have given you that, that faith in humanity and, and how that's grown. Yeah, you know, listen, and, I, and I'll say, writing my book really helped me to come to this conclusion about having a, a stronger faith in humanity because as, a, as I talk about um, towards the end of the book, I originally did not set out to write a book about helpers. That wasn't my intention. My intention was to write a book about my story of being a part of two national tragedies and how the country responded differently to both. Um, and in fact, I wrote that version of the book and I shared it with someone who I trust very deeply, who told me, yeah, he's like, but you know what? A lot of people have already heard that story. You know, we've all heard you talk about it. He goes, I think you should go back and keep writing. And I said, what do you mean? I'm exhausted. I'm, I mean, I've written everything. I've told everything there was to tell. He goes, he goes, you know what? Every page of what you have here talks about other people. Every page. And there's so much more there. And so he's like, go back and keep writing. So I, I, I'm like, how do I like do this? And I, and I, the, the, the person who kind of um, 
gave me my uh, motivation, I guess, or inspiration to change it into this path was when I started rewriting uh, very early in the 9-11 stuff, I talk about a lady who went to the triage and, and asked all the first responders for their name and their phone number. Um, my family, we couldn't reach my brother that day and he wasn't trying to reach us. And so we all got to a point that day, knowing my brother, we knew he was there. There's no question that that's where he was. Um, and when we hadn't heard from him, we started to believe the worst, probably mid-afternoon. And this amazing lady who I've never met, but I've considered her one of the most important people of my adult life, went to the triage and just said to all the first responders, I'm sure you have a loved one. Give me a name and a phone number. And this lady called my parents and said, your loved one is alive. He's working. He will call you when he can. That was the first sign of life we had of my brother that day. And as I'm talking, as I'm rewriting my book and my original version of the book, there was maybe a glancing reference to that lady. I actually started to tell more of how important she was to us that day. And I started to apply that to everyone else in the book. And very quickly, I started to realize there's not a day that I've gotten through that I've done it on my own, that I've not been benefited because of the amazing decency and grace of other people. People on really amazingly wonderful days, you share them with people, right? They help you celebrate. But on these awful moments, it's also people who help you get through it, who carry you. Um, and it didn't matter if it was moments like planning a funeral and my best friend who was by my side every minute of those early days and he sat outside of the room where my wife and I were planning to give us our privacy, but close enough to hear every detail so I wouldn't have to worry about forgetting anything, okay? Or my friend who went back to the school to identify my daughter, even though it was like a daughter to him. That's how close we were. Um, you know, people are amazing. They will be there for you if you let them. And it, there's so many of these personal connections, but we talked about, you know, President Biden. He took the time to connect with me and he, to give me the foundation to go forward. Um, the night I got pulled out of the State of the Union or detained, Nancy Pelosi and Congressman Deutsch, the second the State of the Union ended, they didn't go out and do their normal press calls and press interviews. They got on the phone with the Capitol Police and they ensured that I got released. Um, you know, the, the actors and actresses and others who have stepped into my life, who have got to know, and who have stayed a part of my life because they're just human beings with hearts and brains, just like us, you know? And, and I never really looked at my life as being so strengthened by all of these other people until I went back and rewrote this book. You know, I always, up until that point in my life, things were always about what I did, what happened to me, what I did in response. It was never about all the important people who always were there. And we all have those stories. We all have people in our life that are there for us in our moments. Whether or not we realize it is something different. And I think we're better off if we do. 
So just hearing that, you know, I think that the last year, there's days where you kind of question humanity. When you see how people treat one another, what they say, the rise of anti-Semitism, of hatred, even what's going on now with like, you know, the increase of crimes against Asian Americans. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you just speaking about that really at least touched me thinking like there are good people. There are those helpers that want to help and make the world a better place. Um, what would you say each of us can do to try to make it a little bit better for each other? Yeah. And I'm listen, it's a great question. Evil exists. There are evil people. And unfortunately we are coming off of four years of somebody who used his bully pulpit and megaphone to incite evil. That's what he did. Um, but let's never forget that the majority of Americans still push back and sent him packing. Okay. So evil exists, but good won the day. And I, and I think what I would tell people is if we all stick together, if we all remember we're a part of something that's bigger than ourselves and we all support one another and we all focus on good and decency and civility and humanity, we're all going to be okay. Um, we... Americans, um, we need to do a better job of using our voices, of voting to prevent evil from getting into the wrong positions. But I got to tell you, I've been across this country. I've been to all the states. I've been to all the communities. And everywhere I've been, I meet really good people who love their families, who, who want good things, who want safety, who care about one another. Yes, there, I get it. There's bad out there. And, and we, good people, sticking together, helping one another, we just need to be stronger than that. You, you referenced safety. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you what you think could have helped prevent that horrible day? You know, I live with the guilt that I wasn't doing more to prevent that horrible day before it happened. I wasn't doing more when it was other people's kids. Um, and I tell you that because what we could have been doing before that terrible day to prevent it is have the kinds of gun safety measures that I am working hard to pass now. Three weeks after Jamie and 16 others were killed, we passed gun safety in Florida. We raised the age to purchase weapons to 21. We passed red flag laws. Those two laws alone, had they been in place, there's a really good likelihood that shooting never would have happened. And so I, I, I will have guilt forever that I did not have my voice in this before. Um, but we have to do everything we can now to make sure that we're doing everything we can to address these issues around public safety, our public health. You know, this is not a Second Amendment argument. The other side says that, but it, it's just not accurate. Um, it's not true. This is a public health issue. How do we lower the gun violence death rate? How do we decrease the instances of gun violence? How do we decrease the severity of gun violence injuries when they happen? And we need to look at society and do everything we can to address those three questions. Um, we weren't before, but states across America now are. Some are doing better than others. The most effective approach will be 
doing this nationally. Um, but had the laws that we passed in Florida three weeks after the Parkland shooting been in place three months before the Parkland shooting, probably wouldn't have happened. You know, it's such a touchy subject in, the, in this country because so many people own guns, um, don't want to be restricted in their gun ownership. And it's, and it is state by state. So, you know, we, we live in Chicago, Illinois has different gun laws than Indiana does. The drive to Indiana is not very long. Okay. You can go to Indiana, you can come back to Chicago um, where there are different, different laws. So yep. you, you reference the different states have different laws. Is there a federal, are there, are there two or three things federally that could be done that you think are realistic? Because yeah, obviously yeah. There's, there's a big divide in the country. Well, so listen, I always say every state is only as safe as the state next to it because our borders are open, right? And um, there's a lot we need to do federally. The, the bare minimum is just passing background checks so we can at least quantify who is and who isn't a prohibited purchaser. But that shouldn't just be on firearms. That should be on ammunition as well. Um, which is, you know, I'm working on getting a law passed right now through the House and the Senate called Jamie's Law, which would extend background checks to ammunition. The reason why I think that's so important, we already have 400 million weapons on the streets of America. Many of them get stolen. Many of them end up in the hands of the wrong people because they get traded or they weren't locked up. And it's prohibited buyers who are getting their hands on these weapons that are already out there. And then they just walk into a store and buy the bullets because nobody does a background check on bullets. So I think we need to extend that. I think we need to have national red flag or extreme risk protection orders. They're, depending on the state you're in, they might be called either one. The national age to purchase should be 21. I also think we need to change how we look at this issue across government. It needs to be treated as a public health issue. And the public health agencies in the federal government need to be taking a different approach. They should actually start looking at this issue and figuring out how they can have an approach. For example, right now, it is not the norm in doctor's offices and emergency rooms to talk to families about firearms, but it should be. Doctors should be asking families, especially with children, um, especially where they're concerned that maybe something violent is going on. Are there firearms in the house? How are they secured? And they should be able to make recommendations. Um, there are so many things we can do to save lives that won't interfere with any legal lawful gun owners' rights, um, but we need to start doing it. The one thing that I really am encouraging this current administration to do is to change the way gun violence is talked about. It has always been talked about as a Second Amendment issue, but it's not. Nobody's Second Amendment rights are at risk by trying to do something about gun safety. It is a public health issue. We do have to deal with the reality that we have a gun violence death rate that's going up, and we have to figure out ways to bring it down. And so by changing the way we talk about it, we can come up with solutions to achieve those goals. Um, and, and, and so there's so much we can do. And this is the year that we need to do it. This you is know, the year. When you get your driver's license, you have to sit for a class, you have to have so many hours behind the wheel of the car, sit for another test and prove that you know how to drive a car. Because I remember being told when I get behind the wheels of a car, it's a weapon, like I could kill someone. Yes. And so, and then like, you know, the state makes you go through whatever mandates, it's recorded that you're legally allowed to drive a car. Why we haven't set up a system, hey, if you want to own a gun, that's on you, but you have to go through these steps to prove that you know how to own it, you know how to, you know, we can record it, whatever it looks like. But then on the flip side in the automotive industry, seatbelts, well, they became necessary when people were dying because of car accidents. 
And it's kind of like a no brainer, you know, even last week in Chicago, there's 40 shootings. So it's crazy that we're not trying to take away second amendment well, rights. So, and, and get ready for that to, to get worse. Oh, for because sure. the last administration through COVID unleashed a gun surge on this country. When, when the economy was locked down and only essential businesses could be open, they classified gun stores as essential. You can't make sense of it, but they did. Um, and so lots of weapons got sold to a lot of first-time gun owners or a lot of people who are increasing their arsenal. And through times of economic um, desperation, people are going to unfortunately use those weapons. You know, listen, I'm right on with you. It, it is more complicated to drive to get a license to drive a car than it is a gun and to keep that license and a car's intended person a purpose is is to transport you not to kill you but it can kill you a gun intended purpose is to shoot and kill so you know listen it's more complicated to adopt a dog than it is to get a gun and, and it makes no sense. So you're 100% right. It's why I do what I do. It's why I won't stop. It's why during the State of the Union last year, when they started on the Second Amendment rant, and it's under attack, and you know, the president said it, and then all the Republicans jumped up and went, I yelled out, what about victims of gun violence like my daughter? Okay, that's all I said. Um, it is it is unfathomable that we have to have these conversations, but we do. The majority of Americans support gun safety. The, the, the polling is clear. The past two elections have delivered candidates who support gun safety and have resulted in candidates being fired who don't. Okay, politicians, they notice these things. And this year, they better get it right. I just want to clarify because some people will listen to this and they'll say you're anti-Second Amendment, even though you keep saying that it's not a Second Amendment issue. They'll say you're anti-gun. Your, your concern is with gun safety. That's it. Correct. Listen, my, my father-in-law owns a fair amount of guns. My son has been shooting with him. I took... I go out with friends who are licensed to legally lawfully carry, and they do. I, I My issue is not with gun ownership or legal lawful gun owners. It is with gun safety. It is with this easy access that allows those who intend harm to too easily get the means to do it. When there are many tools in the arsenal, um, no pun intended, um, to identify and do something about that. It just requires political will. And this is not me, I am, this is not me being against guns or gun owners. In fact, the majority of gun owners support me. You, you have these these uh, like the NRA and other groups who speak a certain language, but that comes from leadership. Their members don't necessarily support the leaders of these groups. In fact, the majority of NRA members believe in certain forms of gun safety. Um, so I feel confident in where I stand on this. Um, I, I use Florida as the perfect example. We passed gun safety in Florida there's not a single minute of a single day or a single legal lawful gun owner thinks about what we did in Florida because it hasn't affected them, but it has saved lives. And if people want to learn more about the issue or to support your cause, where can they go? Well, for sure, they should follow me on Twitter, um, which is Fred underscore Guttenberg, because I am really vocal there. and That's where I do most of my writing. Um, you know, um, 
if they want to know more about what our foundation is doing to honor my daughter's life, we have a website, orangeribbonsforjamie.org, um, and Jamie is spelled J-A-I-M-E. Uh, but, you know, I would encourage people to follow me on my different platforms um, because this is my passion. This is what I write about most. Um, and this is the year where um, I won't quit because we can do this. So talk to us about Orange Ribbons for Jamie. What is it? How can people get involved? Yeah, so orange was Jamie's favorite color. And the night she was killed, all of her dance sisters uh, got together at the dance studio and started making orange ribbons. And the next day, they came to our house wearing their orange ribbons, but they brought a basket. There had to be thousands of orange ribbons in the, in the basket. Um, and they went up to Jamie's room, these poor young kids just crying and just holding Jamie's things and just telling stories about Jamie. And they were taking some photos of themselves doing this. And they had on their orange ribbons. They, and they did what kids do. They posted it. And um, it went viral. The, the dance community immediately picked up on it. Um, all the dance competitions for the rest of that year were dedicated to Jamie. And um, in all the competitions, everybody was wearing orange ribbons. Broadway um, almost immediately picked up on it, and uh, Lion King and, and Hamilton and other shows dedicated performances to Jamie and were wearing the orange ribbons. And this all happened in a matter of like hours and days. By the time Jamie's funeral was held, at her funeral, it was already clear to me something was going on with this orange ribbon. And so I talked about the start of an orange ribbons movement. Um, and at that time, my mindset was being about gun safety. I knew nothing about the gun safety movement at the time. About three weeks later, I was in a Home Depot, um, walking around wearing my orange ribbon, which I was doing every day. And somebody asked me what it was for. And when I told them, they said, did you know that's the color of the gun safety movement? And I was like, you're kidding me. And that was too big a coincidence to ignore. So I went home and I told my wife and I said, we, we need to start a group. We need to start a foundation called Orange Ribbons for Jamie. Um, my original intention was to make it the symbol of the gun safety movement. And it has since become that. Um, you know, when HR8 was passed the first time, about 18 months ago, all the House members, Nancy Pelosi, they were all wearing orange ribbons. Um, Nancy Pelosi was wearing one that I gave to her. Um, when, you know, the, the, the movement had a color, but I wanted to give it a rallying symbol, and we did that. But the, the foundation has really become about more than, um, than gun safety. We educate on gun safety, but the real purpose of the foundation is to honor those things that matter to my daughter in life. Um, and while I, on a personal level, do a lot with gun safety, um, my wife has done this amazing job of, of managing this foundation to ensure that things that matter to Jamie are always being accounted for. Could be as simple as the Humane Society, because we're a dog-obsessed family and Jamie was the most dog-obsessed. Um, it could be anti-bullying programs, which we've donated to. Um, we've donated to a, a hospital here called the Paley Institute that does surgeries on kids with limb deformities, which is where Jamie actually wanted to work. Um, we've, we've donated to all sorts of other groups that do programming for kids with special needs. But the two things I'm most proud of is how we've managed to provide opportunities for kids locally and across the country to volunteer and to do things for other people. 
my kids believed in volunteerism and they and and they dedicated their personal time to volunteering for others so getting other kids to do that in jamie's name and honor is a big deal to me but the the legacy thing that we've started through the foundation that i i'm most proud of is our college scholarship program and it's we call it um the kids of all abilities scholarship program and the reason we did that is because it includes all kids there's three buckets one is a child who's going to go to college and wants to be a helper whether it be as a therapist or a doctor or something along the lines of being a helper um, and they have to have a certain number of hours of community service because jamie did the second bucket is someone who wants to major in dance but they also have to have community service but the third bucket is for kids with a documented special need and there's not typically scholarships for kids with documented special needs and often they don't have the academics that get them to qualify but you know what we didn't want to leave them out and they often go on to a post high you know high school education and we wanted to make sure we include them as well so um we call it the kids of all abilities scholarship program and um we're really proud of that uh, my daughter won't ever get to go to college she should be going next year but she's going to send other kids we would love to be involved any way we can um when you guys are going to be doing volunteer days like let us know we'll get the word out we definitely want to support um you and honor jamie any way we can so thank you so much thank you yeah, Fred, we really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, as a father of a, a daughter who's one year old, um, God forbid I ever get a call that you did. Um, so my, my heart goes out to you. Um, so Don't miss you. a minute, my friend. Embrace, embrace every minute of no sleep because it's okay. It's all normal. Great. Well, we always uh, end uh, our interviews with the same three questions. So I'll start with the first. If you had to pick a quote or a mantra that you feel defines you or that you live your life by, what would that be? Well, I'm gonna steal the one that Jamie lived her life by because it has become my quote and mantra since her murder. Dreams and dedication are a powerful combination. That has been what I've lived my life by since. It's what Jamie used to, organize her thoughts and life around but i do i have a dream of a country where we're working to reduce gun violence and i intend to dedicate my life to making sure that happens thank you the second question we ask every guest is if you could relive any one day what day would that be um that may be the easiest question anyone will ever ask me February 14th, 2018, um, which started like a perfectly normal day with um, big plans. And if I could relive it, it would end with me showing my wife and my children the wedding video that I had digitized. So it's a lot to follow up with that answer. Um... If you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would that be? And then I'm also going to ask you if Jamie had a song, what song would that be? Because we want to honor her that way too. So if it was, listen, in almost any question that I would ever answer about music, I would typically answer it with a Billy Joel song because I'm Billy Joel obsessed. I've grown up loving his music um, and his music has gotten me through the past three years in ways that he'll never understand. Like in some of my darkest moments, I would go out and drive and just turn on his music. Which song in particular? Well, Vienna is certainly a favorite of mine, but that wouldn't be my theme song. I'm also a Rocky fanatic, the movie. Um, and I, and I, 
love the whole underdog mentality that goes with the movie. Honestly, I kind of feel like that the past few years, taking on all these political and ingrained interests. So I think if I had a theme song that I would want to play, it would probably be Eye of the Tiger. And then what was Jamie's favorite? We'll add it. You know, so I'm going to give you what um, our favorite was together. I love it. And it was um, um, Rascal Flatts, My Wish. Um, so with both my kids, I, I always made them listen to Cats in the Cradle as well by Harry Chapin. And that was always, I always used to play that and, and, and made sure they understood that don't you ever let me be like the dad in the song, you know? Um, and they knew how much that song meant to me, but the song, but my wish was also a song just, um, that for, for me and my kids and my wish for them may, you know, your life become all that you wanted to and your dreams stay big and your worry stay small. I just, um, it, we, we loved it. And, um, unfortunately, um, I hope she's singing it in heaven. Well, we're excited to honor her and add both your songs to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can go ahead and check it out and hear your theme song featured on that playlist. Um, Fred, thank you so much for talking to us. You know, what you've experienced, I can't even fathom, and that you still wake up every morning and you're fighting the fight and honoring your daughter and protecting children and parents so they don't ever have to go through what you and your family have gone through. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me and um, for, for giving me this opportunity and the time. And um, I hope we stay in touch. Listeners, if you would like to get involved or learn more about Orange Ribbons for Jamie or Orange Ribbons for Gun Safety, please go to our Instagram account at For Your Listening Pleasure to learn more about how you can either donate or get involved. Thanks so much.